thank you for your prayers as uh, preparing for the message and preaching this morning. Appreciate that. I have a question to ask you. You don't answer it out loud at this point, but I got a question for you. Is Christianity relevant for our culture? Think about that a little bit. Is Christianity relevant for our culture? I want to look at a recent Pew report that came out. I'm going to read some of this. And they study a lot of things, do a lot of surveys, keep an eye on things within the Christianity and so forth. And they're saying, and I might just add this. Now, I recognize the fact that when they start talking numbers of Christians versus this and that, whatever, they're talking those who, if you give them a telephone call and a survey and you say, what religion would you affiliate with? And they'll tell you Christian, and they may or may not go to church regularly. They may or may not be living out a Christian life. But we're just talking from their, what they would say and what their reports are. So in the early 1990s, I believe around 90% of people would have claimed to be Christian. That's the early 1990s. That's not that terribly long ago, if you, if you think about it. For some of these young people, they might think that's ancient history, but it's not, believe me. Um, so since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. This accelerating trend is reshaping the U.S. religious landscape, leading many people to wonder what the future of religion in America might look like. The center estimates that in 2020, about 64% of Americans... Okay, now we were talking about 90% in the early 90s. In 2020, about 64% of Americans, including children, were Christian. People who are religiously unaffiliated, sometimes called religious nuns. Now, we're not talking nuns, N-U-N-S. We're talking nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which is a term you will probably start hearing more. Religious nuns accounted for 30% of the U.S. population. Adherents of all other religions, including Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, total about 6%. So depending on whether or not these trends continue at the same rate, or if they don't continue, in other words, kind of flattens off and so forth, by 2070, now I realize that sounds like a long ways off, but again, it probably isn't. Um, I don't expect to still be here on this side. I'll what Kevin talked about, be looking forward to heaven, or I'll be, I hope to be in heaven at that point. That's, I'll be 108 if not. Uh, so at that point, they're saying if things would kind of level off, maybe 54% of people in the U.S. would be Christian, more likely maybe about 35%, about a third by 2070. <clears throat> and over that same period, the nuns would raise, rise from 30% to somewhere around either 34 to 52%. In other words, possibly half the people in the United States would say, I'm really not affiliated with anything, don't really care. Not necessarily atheist, not necessarily agnostic, I'm just, I don't, I don't it just doesn't matter. Which probably puts you in the category of agnostic or atheist or something, but they, they wouldn't care. 
So the question is, what is happening? Now, over the last number of years, Christianity has tried to change its approach to reaching the culture to become more relevant, to fit in better, to have church services that are more appealing to the culture, to have programs that appeal to the culture, to shape Christianity so it is more palatable to those who are not. The question is, has it worked? Apparently not, because the shift is moving in the other direction. So what is relevant anyway? By the way, I I hope I'm preaching to the choir this morning. I I hope I'm uh, preaching to people who believe in Christianity, who want to remain Christian. But I don't know that totally. There are young and old here, and sometimes people surprise you where they're at in life. But I will say this. If I'm preaching to the choir this morning, when you leave here, and you go to work, or maybe you're with some of your family that's not Christian, or you are meeting people in town or on the street or wherever, I got news for you, you're not rubbing shoulders with the choir every day. If you are, you're pretty sheltered somehow. You need to get out more. Uh, Because there are people out there who fall into these categories. So the answer is, is Christianity relevant to them? And how do we approach them? And what, how, what does that look like? Well, the definition of relevant is having significant and demonstrable bearing on the matter at hand. That's one, that's one definition. Affording evidence tending to prove or disprove the matter issue or under discussion maybe having a relevant testimony. Here are some examples. They talk about having social relevance. Uh, Some examples that the dictionary gave. I don't think that question is relevant, counselor. Is monarchy relevant in modern world, or should it be abolished? I've got a couple of sons-in-law here this morning that are mechanics. And if I would tell them, I have found a manual that is very good on diagnosing a vehicle. I, you might want it. Uh, it's got a lot of explanations, definitions. And they'd say, well, what's it for? And I'd say, well, for a 1955 Edsel. I don't think that's relevant to what they do. Now, if somebody here collects Edsels, uh, or somebody does, that might be relevant to them, but certainly wouldn't be relevant, I don't think, to uh, John or Brian. I think they'd tell me to hang it on my wall as an antique and leave it there. And I wouldn't blame them. It wouldn't be relevant to them, but somebody that could use it, possibly. So again, I come back. Is Christianity relevant or isn't it? And think about it. I just I want you to think that through a little bit. Can we make the gospel more or less relevant to a particular culture? Or is the gospel what it is? And that's just, you can't change it. John the Baptist came to his culture and he sized it up. And I believe because he had the Holy Spirit within him, he had a message for him. Repent, 
I don't know if that was relevant to that culture or not. It was relevant in the fact that they needed it. But did they like it? Did it fit their ideas? Did it fit what they wanted to hear? Jesus came on the scene and he began to go about preaching, repent. That was what he preached. It didn't matter if he was talking to the commoner out on the streets or if he was talking to the Pharisees, if he was talking to the priest or whoever, he had a message. Repent. Paul tended to confront the culture, both Jews, Greeks, and so forth. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll look at a couple of verses there. And Paul here in Colossians chapter 3, probably many of you know, is talking about new life in Christ. You know, he starts out there, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And he goes on down through here, and he gets down to verses 10 and 11, and he says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him, that created him. So we're made after the image of God and we put on that new image. And then it says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. It didn't, Paul's saying here, <clears throat> you are to put on the new man. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew if you're a Gentile, if you're a barbarian, if you're Scythian, if you're bond or free or whatever you are. And we can go over to Galatians chapter 3 and see something very similar. And we'll look at verse 26 through verses 20, verse 29 there from Galatians chapter 3. And he says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's making it very clear that it does not matter what's your background, what's your culture, where you're from, uh, what your family lineage is. <clears throat> if you have been baptized into Christ, you're all one, and the same gospel applies to everyone. And so some say, well, we, we've got to make it more palatable those who are hearing it. And so we've got we to gotta tweak it depending on who we're talking to. Well, I'm not saying that if you're talking to someone who uh, maybe it's in another country and little understanding of Christianity that maybe you would talk to them about the very same things that you would talk to someone who uh, maybe was a Christian and is moving away from Christianity and wants to be an agnostic or whatever. I'm sure you're going to approach those two things a little differently. But the same gospel still applies to both. It's not good for one and not the other. It still applies to both. And you might, like I say, you might... Come at it from a little different standpoint, depending on who you're talking to, but you can't change it to make it more uh, acceptable by the culture that we live in. And I just, and, and the reason I'm sharing this message this morning is because there is that.
push and that tendency within Christendom to try to make things so that people are more accepting of what we believe. And what has happened over the last 50 years? Has the culture become more accepting of what Christianity is, or has Christianity become more accepting of what the culture is? And because of that, I believe we have become less relevant, the church in America has become less relevant to the culture because if we have nothing to offer that's different from what they have, why would it matter? Are we still relevant to them? So the Apostle Paul, and by the way, if Jesus would have made everything uh, easy for the culture that he was in, he wouldn't have been crucified. He said things that that culture didn't want to hear. The Jews of his time didn't want to hear what he had to say. They didn't want to see what he was doing. And so if he would have tried to please them with what he had to say, I guess he lived a long time. They wouldn't have crucified him. But he didn't do that. He said what needed to be said and preached what needed to be preached. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I want to look at some things that Paul faced and some people that he faced along his journeys. And we can't look at all of them uh, because he, yeah, spent a lot of time a lot of places, faced a lot of people. But there are a few places that he went to where I think it could have been tempting, at least, to change the message to maybe fit the situation or at least certainly take the heat off a little bit because of the situation he was in. Right shortly after he was, uh, they were sent out on their journey, the Holy Spirit had sent Paul and Barnabas out on their journey, they uh, went to the island of Cyprus. That was uh, Barnabas' home country. I believe he was later uh, persecuted and killed there, but not at this time, but they went there and Uh, to his home country, and I think we'll start reading at verse 4. And so they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they uh, were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they were in the synagogues of the Jews there, and they had John to their minister, John Mark. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, or means son of Jesus, or maybe son of Joshua there which was with the deputy of the country. So he's with uh, a very high up person. And why he was there, I don't know. I guess he was a false prophet, maybe getting paid for his services, taking advantage of the situation. For some reason, he was there with Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. So he's, they're going into this guy and they're like, oh man, this guy's important. Maybe we better be careful what we say. Let's tweak this thing a little bit so it goes over well. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Now this is happening in front of this important man, and this false prophet had some sort of a connection there with him. And Paul's response was, O full of all subtility and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? 
he's really fitting his message so that he doesn't ruffle any feathers in the culture on the Isle of Cyprus, right? I don't think so. He tells him exactly like it is. And then he tells him that not even going to be able to see for a while. Kind of puts a curse on him yet of some kind, or God does. And then if you go down to verse 12, it says, Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, <clears throat> believed, being astonished at the miracle that happened. No, it says he was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord or the teaching about Jesus. And then they lose, they, they left Paphos and they head out. He was astonished at the teaching. Now, I suppose what happened to the false prophet might have really gotten his attention. I'm not saying that didn't help matters. But what it really boiled down to was Paul taught the doctrine about Jesus. He didn't change anything. He didn't uh, water it down. He said it like it was. And you can tell that by the way he talked to that false prophet. He laid it out. I don't know what you would do if you'd be with one of your Christian friends and you'd go somewhere and you'd meet some false prophet that was trying to stop you from witnessing. And he led into him and I called him a child of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. Would you say, whoa, 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 don't talk to this guy like that. Or would you say, preach it, brother, let's keep right on a gone. We don't want somebody like this stopping the word of God from getting where it needs to go. Well, Paul continued through his journeys of life. And um, in Acts chapter 17, he ends up at Athens. And he's by himself in Athens. He had slipped away from Berea because the Jews from... Thessalonica had come down there and chased him out, and so he, he headed down there, and his friends didn't travel with him right away. He ends up in Athens. Athens was a, a beautiful city, I understand. Had possibly uh, 3,000, I believe, 3,000 different uh, temples or statues or something uh, referring to some sort of deity of some kind. They didn't want to miss any gods. They were pretty careful about that in Athens. They wanted to make sure they were covered. So they had all these things. They had the, uh, the statue or the, some kind of thing, shrine to the unknown God. And so they had all this stuff in Athens. And Paul there, we'll look at verse 16 through, uh, through 18 to start with. He says, and while Paul waited for them at Athens, waited for Silas and Timothy, he said, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogues with the Jews. There were Jews there. And with the devout persons, and in the marketplace daily with them uh, that met with him. Religious philosophers of some kind. And in verse 18 it says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you've heard me talk about this, these guys before, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and in case you were sleeping at that time or forgot or something, well, I'll just share. I, this verse always kind of catches me, and I guess it's because I don't, I, I see things too differently sometimes. But these, this, the Epicureans thought 
that the chief thing in life was fun and pleasure and partying and having a good time. And I can just kind of imagine they probably had, they'd get together and boy, they'd laugh it up and they'd hoot and carry on because that was the chief thing of life. Have fun. The Stoics thought the chief thing in life was to get to a point where you had no emotion whatsoever. You could eliminate emotion in your life, have no emotion, no tears, no laughing. That was the chief thing in life. And that's why someone may, you, you hear, still hear that term, wow, he looks very stoic. Someone who, you know, very somber and sober. And I know a few of those people, you know, they, they look very stoic, very important. If I would have been an Epicurean, and I've got a bunch of Stoics around, we're going to see if we can get some laughs out of them. That would have just been, I think that would have had to have been a fun thing for the Epicureans to, to say, oh, there's them Stoics. They think they can't laugh. Let's tell a few funny ones and see if they'll laugh. I, that would have been me. I, but I wasn't an Epicurean, and praise the Lord, I'm not going to be one. But that's what they were. And so these groups of people... Wanted to meet with Paul. So Paul is meeting with people from different cultural backgrounds. Probably some of these people are in town just because Athens was the place to come and study philosophy and talk about these things and try to figure out what was going on. Now, Paul's approach to them, he did kind of meet them on their level, uh, philosophically, on, uh, on, up there on Mars Hill which was a place that they would go to try different religions and so forth. And I'm not exactly sure if, if Paul later thought, I'm not going to try that anymore. We'll see. You go to 1 Corinthians, it, it looks like possibly that. But the fact is, he did confront them about some things. And we'll see that there in verses 30 to 34. He's talking about the idol worship and so forth throughout History said, and, this, and at the times of the ignorance of God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to what? Repent. The same message that John the Baptist had, that Jesus had. He's telling these people, these philosophers, you need to repent. Change your ways because God hath appointed a day in the which he shall judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. So again, he comes back to the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the judge. He says, I've got news for you Epicureans and you Stoics and whoever else was up there. There's going to be a time when you're going to be judged. That's why the message of repentance is important. I don't suppose they like that very well. And he said, I can, I can assure you that it's going to happen by Jesus Christ because God has raised him from the dead. Well, when they heard of the resurrection, it says there in verse 32, um, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again later of this matter. So Paul departed from them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among of the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there were a few that believed. It doesn't, uh, Paul didn't stick around Athens real long, and we don't know if there was a church started or not, or if these people from another area and they, they went home. We don't know exactly what happened. But if you go over to 1 Corinthians, because that's where Paul leaves then. He leaves there and he goes to Corinth and he meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla. 
and he's preaching there in the synagogues. And it says there in Acts, so we didn't look at that, but it says basically that when he was there, that, uh, his friends show up, uh, Timothy and Silas. And it says, then he was pressed in the spirit, and he really went to town preaching the gospel then. He was, he was all fired up. And so if we go to 1 Corinthians, and uh, now, again, when he goes to Corinth, Corinth was another great big town. Maybe we could say he had been in San Francisco and went down to L.A. And neither one of those towns today are known for being uh, hotbeds of Christianity. Hotbeds of other things, but not Christianity. That's probably a little bit like it was to go from Athens to Corinth. Neither one of these cities was known for good things necessarily, especially Corinth. It was a very evil, wicked town. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 18, he says, Therefore the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made the foolishness the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So, as one preacher said, there's something foolish about us standing up here preaching. But God, and I don't need a whole lot of comments on that afterwards, but... Uh, but the fact is, God chose the foolishness of preaching or proclaiming the good news of the gospel to save the world. He could have sent a bunch of angels around, uh, flying through the skies, proclaiming the word. He could have written it in the sky long before there were jet trails. He could have written it with clouds in the skies. He could have dropped little booklets out of the skies. But he chose the preaching or the proclaiming. It doesn't have to be just a preacher proclaiming the word of God. I want you all to be willing to do that to other, for others, wherever you're at. He chose the foolishness of preaching, it says, to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. Okay? There was a culture that said we have to see a sign. Remember they were always asking Jesus for a sign. We've got to see a sign. We've got to see something happen. There are denominations today that are looking constantly for signs. They got to see a sign. God's got to show us a sign. We got to see a miracle. We got to see this. We gotta... So that was that culture. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And if you go over into chapter 2, uh, verses, verse 2 there, it says, for I de Now this is when he first came to Corinth. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And down in verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'll tell this little story. When we were in Israel... And uh, those that were with us on that trip would remember this probably. 
uh, our guide, who was uh, uh, quite a nice uh, fellow, he's been here actually, was, we had a supper for him out here in a cabin one time, he taught New Testament in the college over there. And it was interesting, we would go to places, for instance, we were looking across the Sea of Galilee there, and he said, now over there is the area of the Gadarenes, and he said, you know, he said for years they said there was no cliff over there by the water where a bunch of pigs would have run off and drowned in the sea. He said they didn't believe that. But he said, you know what? He said they have found that the water must have, that the lake has gotten small, uh, smaller through the years. And he said you go back about a mile or so, if I remember that right, and maybe Jerry or somebody there could correct me if, that was, if it's a little different now. But you go back about a mile, and he said there are some, they found some tombs and an area and a cliff, and it all makes sense. And he would say things like that, and then he would say, it just proves the Bible's true. See, it just shows the Bible's true. And I'm thinking, but this guy's not a Christian. He's, he's Jewish. He's, he still keeps his meat and his milk in separate parts of the fridge and things. I mean, he, he still practices some of this stuff. But I'm like, what? What's going on? And we got to the Church of the Resurrection, I believe it was, or someplace there where they claimed some things happened. Anyway, we were there talking and he brings up the fact that he said, he said, surely something, you know, Jesus must have, like, been in a swoon or something because uh, some say that maybe he went to India after, after, his, after he had been crucified, but he hadn't died, and he went to India, possibly got married and so forth, and I'd heard some of those silly stories. And, and he said, and then he said, he must have not died because, you know, the Bible says that a lot of people saw him after his resurrection. Or, and he didn't say resurrection, after his crucifixion. He said after his crucifixion. I was like, well, the Bible also says why, and anyway, I think it was Jerry that brought up and said, well, it was a resurrection. And it was like, he didn't, did he? No. To the Jews, a stumbling block. The gospel of Jesus Christ must include the resurrection he could not accept that. Now, there are a lot of Jews that have. I want to be clear about that. But I saw firsthand, I think for the first time in my life, that just as plain as day. That apparently, he believes much of the New Testament happened, historically at least. But the resurrection, no. But Paul says... We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and Paul taught the resurrection. He had just done it over in Athens, and I'm sure he did it here in Corinth. He preaches the resurrection. It didn't matter what culture you were from. You still had to come to the same place to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the way it had to be. He didn't change it from one to another. Let's go a little, let's go back to Acts I want to look at a couple situations there where I think I would have been tempted. I know I would have been tempted. To maybe change things a little bit to fit either the setting or the people I was talking to. Let's go to Acts chapter 24 to start with. Paul had been um, caught in the temple. He was in a lot of trouble. If it wouldn't have been for the fact that the Temple Mount had a Roman garrison stationed right there to keep an eye on what was going on to the Jews, he probably would have been killed. They captured him, 
And it looks like some of the Roman soldiers came there quickly and wondered what was going on. And eventually, uh, they figured out he was a Roman citizen, so he got some uh, privileges there. He ended up uh, in prison, though, for some time, a couple of years. And he's under Felix at this time. And so if you go over to chapter, to chapter 24, verse 24, and it says, After certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of, in Christ. Now, I, I'm just going to say something here. Felix, from what I understand, you see down here at the end, of, in just a couple of verses, that Festus then took his place. Now, you could be a pretty rough character in the Roman Empire and get by with it if you were a ruler. They didn't want to see riots. You can go back there and look at that story in Acts at Ephesus. And they weren't interested in riots. They weren't interested in, in uh, upheavals in the government. And you could be pretty rough. But from what I understand, Felix was so rough at putting down a, a riot or some sort of happening that even he had to be removed from office. This wasn't, this wasn't going into the Oval Office and talking to Biden. This would be like going maybe to North Korea, Kim Jong-un or somebody, or, or at least maybe uh, some rough dictator somewhere in the world. That's who he was talking to here. And look what he says. And Paul says, he reasoned of righteousness, temperance or self-control, and judgment to come. Felix trembled. I don't know if Paul was trembling or not, but if I'd be talking to a guy like this, it'd be pretty hard to speak of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. I think I'd be the one trembling. And Paul said what the truth was. Here it is. Take it or leave it, basically. And he answered, Go thy way for this time, and I will have convenient season I will call for thee. Well, he hoped that he would get money from Paul, and uh, so he would ask him to come and talk to him often. And then in verse 27, it says, And after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, being willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Well, after he's there for a while, we'll go over to the next chapter there. Um, and in chapter 25... Uh, verse 13 it says and after certain days king agrippa and bernice came unto caesarea to salute festus they come to visit festus now this king agrippa is king agrippa the second king agrippa the first i think was the grandson of herod the great they were herod agrippa basically and uh so herod the great uh and you can see what a kind soul he was but you know he and so here's the grandson. This is a great-grandson, I believe. Agrippa I was the one that uh, had James uh, killed, and Peter was put in prison, and he escaped and all of that. So not super friendly to Christians. Uh, and so here's his son. And he's with Bernice. Now, Bernice is his sister. And Bernice had been... 
given off. It wasn't a great childhood from what I understand. They were here and there throughout the kingdom uh, trying to avoid uh, debt collectors and this and that and trying to be somebody here and there. It wasn't a great upbringing. And I think she had been given to other kings of smaller kingdoms a couple times in marriage. The first one was when she was 13. I don't know if there's any 13-year-old girls here this morning, but um, how would you like to be given off to some king for a wife? And so she had been married several times, and I think by the time she was 22, she was single again. And the rumor was that her and her brother here had an incestuous relationship for a number of years. Down the road, she actually tried to marry somebody else, so that rumor would go away. But even for the Greeks, of all the, all the things that were wrong in that culture, even that was considered anathema. No way. But that was kind of the understood thing, that he comes here with his sister, but it was probably more than that. I'm telling you that to say this guy was not of moral, good morals at all. He's from a family that's known to kill their uh, adversaries, people they don't like. And Paul has an opportunity to talk to him. Again. Do you change the message a little bit? He's from definitely an interesting culture himself. He's from high up, has been for years. What do you do in a case like this? Well, chapter 26, verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. And he goes on and talks there about his family, what he's accused of, and on and on and on. He tells the story. Uh, There's three times in the book of Acts where Paul recounts his, or where we see the story, twice where he recounts his story of being struck down on the road to Damascus. He tells it once here, um, opens it all up to him, and we get down to verse 22, he says, uh, for these causes the Jews caught me in a temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none of the things in those which the prophets of Mo and Moses did say should come. And, and here's his message, to small and great, that Christ should suffer and that he should first uh, be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And he thus spake for himself. Festus said unto, uh, with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad or crazy. But he said, I am not crazy, most noble Festus. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth that these things before, whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. He's talking about Christ. He says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? And he doesn't even let him answer. Now, this is King Agrippa. He said, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. He, he, he just tells him that. He says, I, I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And I, re, I think in the Greek that has more to do with you think so quickly you can persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, we're both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, 
And they that had sat with him, and basically they went aside and they said, you know what, if this guy hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could let him go. He didn't change his message. Well, are you tempted to do that? Sometimes we say we have to change the message to fit people's needs. And I think that's a fallacy. Mankind has many needs, but they all come back to a need. We have the same need that has been around since the fall. God has not changed. You know what people haven't really either? What, was, what got Eve, Adam and Eve messed up in the garden? What was it? It was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What's our problem today? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Yes, cultures change. The American culture is changing drastically. I mentioned that from the Pew Report. It's changing. But people's need is still the same. From the very fall, man has been separated from God because of sin. And it doesn't matter who we face or who we meet or who we stumble into or who walks through the doors into this church. The need is still the same. Yes, stemming from that, we have needs that we need to meet, especially as a brotherhood. Sunday school lessons have been about brotherhood. And we meet each other's needs. We help each other with their needs. But the first need that must be met is the fact that we are separated from God, we are estranged from God, and we need to come back to him. And that is only done through Jesus Christ, the power of God to salvation to them that believe. It's because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the message has always been and always will be, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You can, you, it doesn't change. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and it's not going to change in another two, if that's how long it is until the end. It will always remain the same. So, I asked the question at the beginning. Is Christianity relevant to our culture? If you mean that it applies to mankind's needs, yes, it is relevant. But, if you think that somehow you have to change it, to fit the cultural thinking, then it will never be relevant. It is relevant only in the fact that it doesn't change and it needs to be preached the same yesterday, today, and forever until the Lord returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you stay the same. Thank you that your message stays the same. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit that we can know how and where and when to share that good news with others and to preach your word and to teach your word and to share with others the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to never forget, Lord, that it is the good news and that you have made a way for mankind to be redeemed back to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to have the wisdom and just the fervor and the strength to share that good news with others without fear and without thinking we have to change it some way. Just help us to be willing to share it with others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.